Well, we've been gone for like over half a year. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes life intervenes. We've or I've made noises about this on Twitter and Facebook if you follow us there. The project isn't entirely dead. We've got 10 episodes left in the can which still need to be edited. We'll probably keep doing this at kind of a snail's pace in future years, but you know, the big wave of conversation production kind of stopped. You know, that's not to say that we've died. Certainly all sorts <laughs> of things have happened in life that caused this. You know, you bought a house, I got engaged. But this as a project is not something that we ever saw having a, a concrete end. But right. we're, we're reaching the point where I think it, it changes. It slows down. But we want to we keep it going. Totally. And the only way to pick up the original pace would be to get, like, massive funding from somewhere. And uh, we certainly gave that a valiant effort. And uh, we may apply for a couple more grants. But it's just a whole lot of work, you know. At this point, I'm working a full-time job, so right. that certainly cut back in my editing time. That said, we have started some interesting things back up. And this episode is kind of one of those things. It's not going to be like any other episode in the project. It's a panel we did at South by Southwest. We are as shocked as you are. <laughs> we pitched this, I'm not going to say as a joke, because, <laughs> because we did want to give this talk. Right. But we pitched it fully expecting it to never get accepted. Um, for those that don't know, South by Southwest is a big conference that happens in Austin every year. It's got three components, music, film, and interactive. The interactive component is, well, it's, it's a mutual masturbation session for the tech industry. <laughs> uh, that's, that's pretty well put. Um, and so, of course, we decided we were going to pitch a talk at this conference called A Sheep in Wolves Clothing, The Myth of Disruption, in which we took what we've learned from the conversation and, and applied it directly at the tech industry in the heart of the beast. This is something that grew directly out of the conversation, right? And a bunch of episodes in which we've talked about different definitions of progress and often a feeling that we've had and not to generalize too much but <laughs> that folks who have a really intense tech background don't always have a humanities background and that makes talking to people in a lot of other areas difficult there's just not the language there and so when you get into a question of progress it felt like a lot of our more tech thinkers had a pretty buttoned up idea of progress that wasn't in conversation with anyone else, where it felt like a lot of the other ideas of progress we heard did talk to each other. Right. So we pitched this talk way back in July of 2013, of last year. And we found out in September that we got accepted, surprising both of us. Kind of horrifying. <laughs> Actually horrifying us. Because <laughs> then we had to get stuff together. And that's what you're about to hear. We should preface this by saying two weeks prior to the talk, after we'd been working on it for a while, we found out that scheduled at the exact same time was Edward Snowden's first public appearance since the leaks first came out. And that basically guaranteed that we would have an audience of zero. Um, we did somewhat better than that. We had an audience of about 40. And uh, 
after 10 minutes of speaking, we had an audience of about 20. Which, uh, I don't know, I was pretty proud of. <laughs> and, and we still don't know. I mean, did everyone want to go see Snowden? Did they find us shockingly boring? Or were they from a tech background and didn't like the idea that we were essentially suggesting that the progress that's implicit in everything the tech industry does is actually an extremely narrow definition of progress, and actually we don't think it's a very good one. That would be a pretty good reason to not want to listen to us. We're not really sure the answer to that. We leave that as an exercise to the listener. And so with that... We would like to introduce us. Shall we? Mm-hmm. All right. Why the hell are you here? Don't you know Edward Snowden's talking right now? We're glad that you are, though. Yeah. Uh, you may have noticed the lights are out and the, uh, the screens are off. It's because we're radio people. So uh, we're, we're doing something a little different than I think most people do here. So feel free to like treat this as a radio show. And, Close your eyes if you want to. That way you don't have to look at us. Yeah, it's a lot easier that way. And because we draw a lot of, uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today from a series of radio projects, um, one of which has been going for the past two years. And so we're kind of used to working in, this, in the theater of the mind, and we thought the truest way to do that would just be through voice. Um, so it'll be sort of, sort of nerdy, sort of cerebral, sort of science, sort of humanities. Should be fun. So we should just jump first. in, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm Mike Asal. I'm uh, an ontologist in tech in San Francisco, but I've also been working with Angus on this radio show, which I think he will give a, a much more in-depth uh, description of. Yeah, and I'm Angus Anderson. I'm uh, trained as a historian, but I've been working in media for a long time and doing radio more recently. Uh, past five years I've spent kind of on and off traveling the U.S. and talking to lots of different people about the past, the present, the future, uh, recording stuff that's sort of journalism, sort of oral history. And the project that we've been working on for the past two years is called The Conversation. And in a nutshell, it's a big sprawling project, but um, I was driving all over the U.S. and talking to really interesting thinkers in a lot of different fields from people you know, who come from faith traditions to you know, NASA scientists to environmental people. Um, and basically asking them to talk about what sort of futures they wanted and why. And that always, of course, turns into a philosophy conversation. And uh, when I would start telling them about each other, which was another premise of the project, what happens when you tell these people about each other's ideas, uh, you get some really interesting back and forth. But you need a common language for that, and that language is philosophy. And I think when we both started working on the project, you know, our, our philosophical vocabulary was very small. And um, we learned to, I don't know, we started grappling with a lot of new concepts, which sort of dovetail right into what we're going to be talking about today. Um, things that have to do with what is progress, what is the good, um, stuff like that. So, want to just jump right in? Sure. So, raise your hand if you think all of the world's problems are solved. And, uh, you know, there's really nothing, nothing bad going on. Everything's kind of good. Yeah. I was expecting to see at least one, <laughs> one person being belligerent. So, you know, as as the progress advanced, or as a, sorry, as the show advanced, we realized that there are a lot of people really, really worried about the future, and they're worried about big, big things. We're talking things like inequality. We're talking things like overconsumption of resources, environmental collapse, social collapse, community breakdown. 
general feelings of powerlessness against massive systems. It's a cheery bunch of people that we spoke to. <laughs> um, and, and this seems to be universal. I mean, many, many people are having these, these concerns. But, you know, we all work in tech, right? That's, that's you know, that's what we do. We, we, we look at the big problems and we, we solve them. That's what disruption's all about. So uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about how, if it has, how tech has addressed those big problems, or has it? Right, and I think something that you get into when you start looking at, okay, we've got this laundry list of, of problems that a lot of people can agree on, um, and you start looking at, okay, well, here's sort of the science and technology industry and their approach to solving these problems, and there's an implicit definition of progress that comes out of that. Um, but before we go any further, there's something that, like, if you're someone who's kind of a sociology nerd or a humanities person, you'd break science and tech, the industries, which are social creations, from science, the abstract practice, and technology, the stuff, right? So when we're talking about science and tech here, we're talking about them as modern social institutions that are embedded within kind of a, a capitalist economic system. So we're talking about practice and customs and things like that. Um, so we're not talking about empiricism. We're not talking about the scientific method. Right. We're talking about how those things are used in modern society. Embodied in research right. labs, embodied in universities, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and so as we started getting into this, and we were going, well, God, what are these? You know, there's, we're certainly driving towards something, but what are the unspoken ways we would define progress? And what do we even, what's, what's the word for this type of progress that's emerging from the science and tech industries? Because we've run into a lot of different definitions of progress. And so we needed a name. And we were like, okay, modernist progress, it's an ugly name, but in a way, that's what we're gonna be working with today. That's what we think is the implicit progress that comes out of the science and tech industries. Um, and let's actually just break that down into its kind of constituent parts, things that we think you could trace out of it. If you were like a philosopher looking at modernist progress. Yeah, what, 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 are the, what are the sort of core tenets of, of this philosophy? So number one, we think it's physicalist. Um, so that is, the world is just stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's matter. We can, it's, it's matter we can touch. It's some, something we can look at. And any spiritual or moral or philosophical ideas don't really have any true existence or true being outside of outside of society or outside of your own head, right? They, they don't have any any real ontological existence, right? Um, which, of course, leaves a lot of room for relativism. If if all of that is just per, you know personal preference or social preference or, or social construction, then well, it's really easy to say there is no moral good to, to any of them. Right. And I think what's interesting is that if that's kind of your first building block of modernist progress, the second one totally contradicts that. But this is what's nice about an implicit system. It doesn't have to be like coherent, right? And the second thing that we were talking about or thinking about was scientism. And uh, scientism is one of these words that we bumped into after a series of interviews and we're like, what the hell do we call this thing that our speakers keep referring to, um, and it's like, oh, you just go and find the appropriate word, scientism. It's really different than science. Um, being a scientistic thinker is very different than being a scientific thinker, and scientism is essentially a faith in 
science as an end, right? Science isn't the thing getting you somewhere. Science is the goal. Um, and, uh, and that's an irrational goal, which is another one of these words that we just keep stumbling across. You know, it's not having science as kind of the end game of progress, you know, whatever that is, more knowledge, more something. It's not something that you can rationally say that's good or that's not. It is, in essence, it's a faith statement that more knowledge is a good. Um, and there's no way to get that from reason. And there are other components, I think, that come with scientism. Um, kind of the, the notion that overcoming human limits is a good. Um, that extending kind of our ability to control and manipulate the world is a good. Um, so that's another component of modernist progress. Increasing, along the same lines, increasing complexity mm -hmm. of, of systems, but simplifying theories, right. also part of scientism. Um, and all of these are in some ways related to growth, which is, I think, another sort of core tenet of, of modernist progress. And that it's, it's fundamentally growth-based because it's physicalist and because it's scientistic. Because, because it's physical, we can measure everything. Because we can measure, we can constantly seek to improve it. And an improvement here tends to mean increasing, right? Increasing power, increasing knowledge, increasing, et cetera. Um, also, because everything is physical, and so what we're doing is we're, as we're growing, we're, we're getting more stuff, slowing that growth down seems really friggin' scary. Right, it's like analogous to death in a way. Yeah. So yeah, you've got a growth bias in this sort of modernist progress. You also have, I think, an assumption that science and technology don't have a use bias, one way or the other, that they're kind of morally neutral things and that culture comes and applies you know, its biases to it afterwards, that a tech isn't biased in one way towards a certain type of use or another type of use. Right, and, and along with those biases, there's also the idea that, that it's, it's privileged, that the, the, the makers and doers of science, and again, all of these, all, every time we use science here, we really do mean science industry, not science, but, but science can make privileged claims that are unassailable by non-scientists, either because they don't have the understanding or they don't have the training or they're just, they're not, you know, they're not a member of that priest class of scientism. Right. And what's interesting is there's sort of a jump you have to make there um, from, you know, the layperson not being, able, not being able to understand sort of the inner workings of science or of a technology and then it being assumed from there that they cannot understand the implications of it. And I think that's something that's often kind of a, a fuzzed over in a way. Um, and so if we kind of break down modernist progress like this, um, what's interesting is that why is this implicit? Why isn't this something that we talk about kind of in the open more often? And um, something that, that we've sort of run into is that you know, we talk to a lot of different people who have other ideas of progress. And those typically come from philosophical communities, faith communities, things like that. And they're really in the open about how their assertions of what is good, they're, they're irrational. You know, maybe they come from you know, some angst-ridden philosopher sitting on a block of stone. Maybe they come from some you know, raging prophet. But you, there's no cloak of empiricism. There's no cloak of science to give them legitimacy. They're philosophical statements or theological statements. And what's interesting about modernist progress is that unlike these other things, it can kind of cloak, it can make itself seem normal because it draws on the legitimacy of scientific research, right? So you can have empirical research which yields actual data about the world, 
which is knowledge, and it can take that, and it can go, here's what is, and then it makes this quick jump to here's what ought to be, right? And David Hume in the 18th century was like, no, that's a fallacy, you can't do that. You can't go from is to ought, but we do it all the time. And you see it with a whole lot of different, like kind of how science is often applied um, in the public space. Right, so I think it's, when you, when you remove that sort of sense of legitimacy from modernist progress that it, that it, it tries to gain from, from uh, you know, empiricism, you start to see that this definition of progress really does just draw, it's, it, it's no different than any other. It, it, it comes from irrational beliefs, mm -hmm. unquestioned beliefs, and, uh, sorry, but, but, but if you fail to see that, if you fail to see that, that the empiricism does not grant legitimacy to the, the beliefs, then it, it's very easy for that just to become normal, which is, I think, what it is in the industry, but also just in general these mm -hmm. days. This right. Is, this it can tends, supersede other right. belief systems, right? Because it's normal, it's assumed physicalism, these other tenets, growth, they're good. And you can pile things like philosophies and religions on top of that. But you can kind of never get beneath that until you recognize that it is a system like them. Um, and of course, the question is, why should we care about this? And um, what we kept running into again and again is like a lot of different thinkers who would say, well, you know, modernist progress just isn't doing the best job of answering our questions. Um, it's, it's steering kind of our logic, the logic of our civilization in a certain direction uh, that may not be the best direction and may not be as publicly debated as we would like. Um, and there are ample examples of this sort of thing. I mean, if we want to go to the past, you can look at um, social Darwinism in the 20s being a very strange application of evolutionary theory, but and it, it made the isot jump, right? You can say, well, here's the evolutionary theory applied to biology. We kind of go, well, then societies ought to look like this to mirror evolutionary theory, and you end up with some really creepy social policies. Um, and while it, you can look back at social Darwinism in the 20s and go, ha ha, that was then, what did they know? We still do things like that. Right. Uh, you know, more recently, I think the bell curve is, a, is an example. I'm yeah. sure many people here have at some point in their education dealt with, dealt with that. And if you actually look at the science behind it, it's, there's, there's, there's scientific claims and then there's this insane jump to how we should, how we should you know, act because of that. Right. Um, there are plenty of other modern examples. Um, you know, neither of us were at the previous talk, but I was reading the description and, you know, light green environmentalism is this new phrase that's been, band uh, you know, thrown around recently. Right. Which is the idea of technological progress being able to reverse the man-made environmental collapse that we're causing. Right. And... You know, there's a, there's a, there's a big question there. Is that actually practicable? Um, and, and is that, is that more based on tech utopianism and magical thought than, than actual real science? Right. And if you really wanted to have that conversation, you'd probably have to break down modernist progress and have it out in the open. Um, and another thing which seems pretty apropos of, of Edward Snowden speaking right now is that uh, with, say, digital rights or surveillance, um, you have, you know, if you're following kind of the path of modernist mm -hmm. progress, 
uh, you could say that, well, we're going gung-ho into developing a lot of technologies that make surveillance really easy. And we're putting the development of those technologies way ahead of any conversation about why we'd want them or what they're for, right? Because we are privileging development, just the furthering of creation over the ideas of other progress, which might be privacy. I mean, that could be another irrational definition of progress. Yeah. So I, I think that's a perfect, perfect place to jump into what we, what we realized as we were going through the project is I think these beliefs are something that both of us had in some way or another yeah. because, because they are so normal. And it was really interesting to talk to people and hear people talk about other ideas of progress that are just completely removed mm -hmm. from, fr from these ideas of progress, from, from a growth science-based, scientistic-based progress. Yeah, and we got a bunch of these, and they, they came from people across the country. And I mean, a bunch of them are going to sound really commonsensical, but when you wonder if that is an end rather than just sort of an accessory goal, it becomes a really kind of challenging thing. So the idea of, say, equality as a different measure of progress, if that's what you're working towards, if technology and science need to push you towards equality, that's really different than pushing towards more scientific knowledge. Um, environmental quality, you know, we, had, we talked to a bunch of different thinkers who all came from different approaches and some some would argue that like, well, the environment, you know, the existence of the natural world has an innate value that's non-rational. And that's something that is a form like preserving that is a form of progress, right? right. That, that should be an end. And that could be argue. preserving it for the sake of all other life because all life has some intrinsic value. Right. Or it could be preserving that because for purely selfish reasons, because it has some value to us as humans, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it's not necessarily a a anthropomorphic versus biocentric or anthropocentric versus biocentric divide. It's right. the, the idea that, you know, it can be good for either. Um, you know, another really going even farther down the, the intrinsic value of all things world, there is, uh, we, we talked to one guy who, well, he's a, he's a neo-primitivist. He's uh, self-described as a Luddite, um, but he, you know, his, uh, his idea of progress is really interesting to us, which is that unmediated human interaction and interpersonal experience is incredibly important. And any progress that isn't moving towards that, he's not interested in talking about. Mm -hmm. And kind of actually connecting in with that, uh, there, was, there was a woman I spoke to in Seattle who works with the Happiness, Happiness Initiative. They're essentially bringing Bhutan's idea of gross domestic happiness to the US and applying it in Seattle. And, um, you know, she put forth an idea of progress which is still measured, but it's something that essentially looks at like free time, quality of life, access to space, um, a lot of the unmediated interpersonal stuff. Um, community, you know, is just something that a lot of people talk about in terms of progress. Like, what is your, can you really talk about progress as a society if you end up having to move to different cities all the time for jobs and that disrupts your community network every time? Is that community network a thing that we should be considering part of progress? Um, and, and of, then course, of course, oh yeah, go, go for, for it. it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's, there's an elephant in the room, of course, in that, you know, another core philosophy that I, I would suggest the majority of the world is a part of are faith traditions, right? And faith traditions have a very different definition of progress. Right. Um, a lot of definitions of progress, right. which we don't need to get into, but it's pretty self-evident that oftentimes those definitions of progress would question why are we designing our civilization in one way or another? 
And the thing about all of those ideas of progress is that they are, in fact, philosophies. They are all trying to answer the big questions, mm -hmm. you know, questions of what and why and how and who are we and what, you know, what are we doing here and why should we be doing it. And, you know, and usually they, do the, they answer those questions explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, and as we, we thought about it, we realized that all of those ideas of progress can answer those questions without the help of science or tech. Right. They almost live in separate universes. Right. And, you know, we, we came up with the, you know, the, the idea that understanding quantum mechanics will never tell you why to treat another person with dignity, which, so, so if, if tech and science aren't required for those ideas of progress and aren't required to answer those big questions, can they answer those big questions? Right. And are we assuming that they can? And I think something that, that is kind of intriguing here is that, uh, I mean, essentially to, to answer a question like that, you have to really size up the value of the science and technological enterprise as a whole, right? Because we can point to different things. We can say, well, the printing press massively expands literacy. That seems like that's an unequivocal good, right? But you still end up with, you know, czarist Russia in the 19th century being largely illiterate and having printing presses. Um, or, you know. Having this, right. having, having the internet in my pocket means I can access all of the world's knowledge like this. Which seems like which seems like a good. a good thing, right? But then you look at North Korea or Iran or even China, where they also have this in their pocket, and they can't access all the world's information. They can access only a very small part of it. Right. And, and so I think you end up with sort of this, we often commit this, this teleological uh, problem where we say, well, things are pretty good for us now, and they are and we have all of this amazing technology, it must have led us to this point. It must inevitably get things here to where we are. But I think you know, when you start talking to a lot of different people about the future, and especially when you start looking at other historical examples, you see that, a lot, that often these, these technological um, advances can take you to a whole hell of a lot of different places, um, and they aren't always good. So trying to size up the enterprise as a whole is a really difficult thing, and often it seems like it's hard to put a value on it. Like maybe it just, you can't say it's good or it's bad, right? And that when you start talking about progress, maybe that's just a separate conversation. So you have to almost set technology aside and say like, let's not try to evaluate this or evaluate this as a positive or negative. Right. So if we, if we do that, if we set aside the value of, of modernist progress and, and the, the results of it, we, we start to see that maybe we need to, to really ch fix those problems that we were talking about up at the start, that we need to disrupt things a hell of a lot bigger than just other technological industries and other industries that are embedded in our system as it, as it stands. Right. Um, you know, in order to really solve those questions, we need to look, we need to disrupt the irrational ideologies which which underpin the science and tech industry. And in order to do that, we have to disrupt the economy. Right, and it's, it then becomes also a political conversation. You have to disrupt politics. 
So rather than necessarily you know, saying, this phone is going to disrupt things in a way that, that liberalizes the world or makes you know, democracy blossom or something like that, you have to say, well, you know, this phone could be used in a hell of a lot of different ways. Maybe rather than fixing on the phone is the end, what we need to do is we need to say, uh, we don't like the lack of representation here. Let's have that be the goal. And let's see if maybe we can use the phone as the tool. But ultimately, we're not really caring that much about the phone. We're caring about the end. Right. You know, there's never going to be an app that prevents misogynists from treating women like crap. You know, a, the existence of websites is not going to help with bullying of LGBT students in our schools. Right. Uh, an app is not going to make you value the existence of the, the life of the, the, the animals outside. Right, and it certainly isn't going to like give you a hug when you need it, right? So those are all things that would come from other definitions. Like the community is there to do some of that other stuff, right. uh, which is a totally different definition of progress. So I think you know, probably what is emerging at this point is that uh, we don't, this isn't like uh, an anti-science or anti-technology presentation at all, but it is saying that, uh, that we think progress is a hell of a lot bigger than a conversation about science and technology and disruption is really a conversation that needs to be about the economic sphere, about the political sphere, and maybe about the practice of science and technology and how it relates to those other spheres. Right. Um, so I think what would be interesting is, because this is, this is an idea of, you know, the future belonging to everybody, not just the futurists, but to the humanities and, and individuals, I think we're going to flip the normal South by Southwest thing on its head and try and turn the rest of this hour into a conversation. Like we've, we've now had a conversation and raised a lot of ideas, we hope. <laughs> Do any of you have anything to say about this, want to talk about this? Uh, there's mics up front. Anybody? Yeah. Or, okay. Oh. oh, yeah. Jump on in. Mm. See, we're used to doing these long format conversations with people, and when you're sitting up at the head of a panel, it's like not conducive to actually, you know, unmediated interpersonal interaction. We were actually hoping there were going to be a lot less people so we could just circle up the chairs and, and talk, but. Um, as long as your general life uh, philosophy is relativistic, you have no mandate to actually do anything. Because if everything is relativistic, neither one is better than another. Mm -hmm. And so there, there is, you, you can't say there is a good or a bad, there's only a different. Sure. And without good or bad, you have no mandate to change. So how do you deal with that? I think that's where you need a big society. -wide. I mean, I think this is where democracy really excels as a system because Unfortunately, like, I mean, if you look at history, there have been so many definitions of good and bad, and usually they're just settled by who wins the war. And, um, and we often try to settle that through conversation, kind of knowing that we're going to have a bunch of definitions and that ultimately, like, unless God shows up and says, like, hey, guys, this is how you do it, you know, or someone comes up with a nice theorem to say this is what's good and this is bad and you can empirically prove it, like, we're always going to have to have that sort of conversation kind of figure out, like, what do we collectively think? What, you know, what's kind of the common denominator of good that we can settle on, you know? And your, your point is well made. I'm, I'm not suggesting that that, I mean, empirically that is correct. 
but the dominant philosophy of our age is essentially relativistic. Mm -hmm. And as long it is relative, as long as it is relativistic, there is no mandate for change, because if one option is as good as another, you know, with, without a a moral value, mm -hmm. saying this is good, this is bad, there is no energy, there is no impetus, there is no um, there is no reason to select one value system over another. Absolutely, and I think what's interesting is, of course, that we all do we feel impelled to select those value systems in our own lives, and other people are selecting them all the time. And so it's just kind of in the process of, of out of all of those selections, it seems like that conversation emerges and we do start to change, even if there isn't like, you know, on a, on a bigger picture, um, there's no compelling need to change, right? Like we're going to change because we almost, we have to within ourselves and other people have to, and those things don't square. So, but if you go to nine out of 10 universities and go to the philosophy department, what you, what you get is a relativistic message. Partly for political reasons, in the sense if you make any outright assertion, you open yourself up to attack. Mm -hmm. Very straightforward. It's much easier to say, whatever you believe is fine, you know, I'm just here to facilitate. And for obvious reasons, it's public education, so you have feedback from the community and so forth and so on. But nevertheless, as long as the, the, the dominant message of our age is relativistic, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting yeah, I'm not here to tell you what to believe or anything like that, right? It's, it's just, but as long as you have this overall uh, message that it's, it, it's all the same or all of equal value, mm -hmm. there, is no, there is no incentive to change because one is not better than another. Right, and that's something that, you know, as, as we've had these conversations with different thinkers all over the place, a lot of them need to differentiate between relativism and often they talk about, you know, moral realism. And so it's, it's tough, right? Because you want to be as open-minded as you can and you want to say, okay, well, there are all these different ways of, of thinking about the world and believing things. And uh, you don't want to say, I'm right. You know, you've got that down. But you also want to say, well, some of these definitely feel wrong. And that's kind of, I mean, there's no real way to logically have both of those. Um, and that's where people talk about, I'm thinking specifically of a, of a Rutgers Law professor um, named Gary Francione, he's a really interesting guy, and he's, uh, he's written a lot of books about veganism, and he was talking about, like, how do you get between moral relativism and also the sense that there are things that are wrong in the world? Um, and he was talking about moral realism, which is something that I have trouble with, because it's still kind of an assertion that some things are good, and most, most definitions of progress will kind of come together on that. For instance, not killing generally a good thing. He would say, okay, well, we can put that in the realm of moral realism, um, where you can have a lot of different traditions that accept that, but also say that, like, you know, killing is generally bad. Um, it's sort of like a, I mean, it's just an elaborate dance to get around some, some thorny stuff that's hard to resolve, I think. Uh, thanks. As someone from the Amish community who's spending more and more time in the tech scene, I'm wondering where you guys see there being space for displacing this idea of progress and where these other kinds of visions of progress and stories of progress can actually live. And I think my own struggle has been about rather than hiding out and being in a community with a very different kind of progress, how can we bring that kind of moral agenda into our systems and into our technologies? And so who have you spoken to that's really trying to figure out ways of actually 
unpacking our ideas of progress from the inside without just opting out or going into an Amish community or a more minimalist off-the-grid lifestyle or things like that? That's a good question. You want to jump in on that one? I was thinking like the first thing that came to mind for me, because it seems like a lot of the people who've given us really radical different, radical definitions of progress that like surprised us um, were opting out, you know, in a way that doesn't feel like it's, it's as constructive as maybe it could be. But I'm thinking of Wes Jackson here. Wes Jackson's interesting. Yeah. He's a scientist and he had a really different definition of progress. Right, so Wes Jackson is a, uh, he's a researcher down at the Land Institute mm -hmm. in Kansas. Or yeah, Salina, up, Kansas. Up from here, but, um, and he's working on, I mean, he's, he's a scientist, he is a biologist, and he is, he is hacking genomes left and right. Um, but his vision of progress was very interesting, and his, his uh, he, in fact, we got some of the best quotes about slowing down growth from him than, than we did from anybody else, which was surprising considering he's, he's very much a part of the, the tech and science industries. Mm -hmm. um, but he sees them as vehicles to a different type of progress, which right. is, you know, he's, he's one of these guys, he's more in the environmental camp of thinkers, so he looks at agriculture, which is his interest, and he goes, okay, well, we've got this really bizarre mass agriculture system, and is there any way that we could create, like, basically a prairie-like ecosystem, so something that's like, um, has a, a variety of different crops that's perennial, and could you have that be food-producing in a really meaningful way that maybe isn't quite as good as industrial agriculture, but is close? Um, so he's sort of reinventing the agricultural wheel in a way, because he sees this crisis of food and water um, and growth, and for him, he's using a lot of, you know, a lot of really interesting research to get there. So he's something like he could be creating a real model that people might use um, that has scientific legitimacy, but also, like, suggest very explicitly a different definition of progress at the end, which isn't, you know booming growth for its own sake, it's sustainability within a very complicated ecosphere, which he feels is like generally too complicated for us to fully get our heads around, you know, all the ins and outs of how the ecosphere works. Yeah, I, I, think, I think to more directly answer the question of, you know, how do you, within science and tech, how do you disrupt that idea of, of progress? And the way you do that is I think you need to find some other idea of progress. You need to have some other sense of the good which is not based on science and tech. You need to actually remember that, that, that these are tools and not an, not, uh, not an end unto themselves. And also not to be a Luddite while you're at it, right? Because right. I'm thinking of, of the pronovist we spoke to who's got some really interesting ideas of progress that I think are valuable but he's so rabidly anti-science and technology that there's no way to take him seriously. Right. Even though, I mean, he's an incredibly smart thinker. But he just, he doesn't, he never makes the case that his philosophy could be incorporated into anything. It's just not pragmatic. Other questions? Nonsense? You can throw things at us. I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts on um, disruption within financial services. Mm -hmm. um, 
as this being one of the underpinnings of capitalist society, um, is there room for anarcho-capitalist philosophy within you know, this socially uh, and government regulated sphere? How much disruption is truly possible under these circumstances? That's a good question. Man, that's something that we talked about a lot in this project, and we got a lot of different answers from different thinkers. The guy who comes to mind right now as you ask that is a guy named John Fullerton for me, and he was the head of J.P. Morgan um, in the uh, mid-90s. And he really turned his back on the financial sector, at least in the traditional sense, and started this weird little group, which is like a think tank in Connecticut now, which is trying to think of other ways where we can it's very pragmatic, so he's trying to think of other ways that we can incorporate stuff like that into a system that already exists like this. He's not some dreamer who's going, we need a different type of economic system. He's like, okay, how can we bring some of those ideas into a functional thing? And man, he's a downer to talk to. <laughs> he is a real downer to talk to, but he's, he, makes his, he makes some really interesting points. And I think with him, you know, I think the first kind of axiom that he starts from is that you can't have an economic conversation without having an environmental conversation at this point, because they're both so interwoven. And I remember he kind of, oh God, he left us with this awful choice, which is something that I think keeps him oh up at night God. too, which was essentially that like, if you want to achieve sustainability, you've got to rein in an economic system like ours um, in such a way that it will actually, it could collapse because it is predicated upon growth. So you can have sustainability and collapse the economic system. And he's like, well, that's, that's a bad answer. Um, so what happens if you just let the economic system go? Well, you have another sustainability problem because it keeps growing. And when it runs, when it has a resource crisis, then the economic system collapses. And so he was trying to figure out like, okay, how do you take this giant ship that's basically got a huge amount of momentum on it and and start tinkering with it in a way that doesn't, you know, I mean, we depend on this for the distribution of all of our goods, whether that be financial or more tangible stuff. Um, and I think what I liked about him is like, here's this incredibly smart guy and we're sitting down talking, and he's like, I don't know. And I mean, I don't think that we've come to any epiphanies about this either. I think what we've, what we've come to appreciate more um, is sort of that uh, the massive complexity of the economic environmental system and that once you start tinkering with it, once you start disrupting in there, you really don't have any guarantee of things getting better. Like, we've built the house of cards very tall, and, uh, and I think that's why, you know, even though this project has probably left us both thinking about, like, really different ideas of progress, it's also made us a lot more careful about what we would suggest disrupting, you know? Because, you know, I, I think that this is sort of off topic from from this conversation, but the biggest takeaway I had from this project, which, which is actually still ongoing, is really starting to rethink the idea of complexity mm -hmm. as being a good thing. And, and, you know, we've talked to thinker after thinker about complexity and how interconnected everything is that, uh, you know, I, in some ways, these systems we've built are too large for humans to comprehend anymore. They've, 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 they've moved beyond our brain. Um, there was a, actually a philosopher who was at Davis, but is now, where is he? He's at Rice, actually. He's at Rice now. And he, he was actually here. here on Friday, I believe, named mm -hmm. Timothy Morton, that we talked to a lot about uh, complexity and the idea of these, 
he calls them hyper-objects, which are often man-made systems that are, that are so large that they cannot be comprehended anymore. Right, and they essentially have kind of emergent properties of behavior, like the economy. Like the economy, yeah. like uh, global warming was another example he gave. Mm -hmm. um, and his book, Hyper-Objects, just came out. It, it's supposed to be awesome. So that's probably a really poor answer to your question. So of essentially saying, like, we have no, no idea, idea how you actually begin <laughs> to disrupt the financial system without making a big mess. Um, but I think that's as candid as we can be. We just don't know. I think the important part is that people actually are talking about it. You know. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you've come across the writings of Daniel Quinn and um, whether or not uh, I, he kind of referred to this notion of progress in our culture as kind of riding a, uh, a bicycle over a cliff. <laughs> you can pedal faster, you can pedal in different ways, but you're still going to fall. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just kind of curious to... I believe he's in my gigantic spreadsheet of names of people I really want to talk to. And this has been something that's been growing over a couple of years. And um, I don't know as much about, about him specifically, but certainly that analogy has, has come up in, in other people. And I know people we've interviewed have referenced him. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this project keeps going on, I will try to get to him. <laughs> and then hopefully we'll post an interview for you. <laughs> So you're talking about progress as being very linear, mm -hmm. right? If you, but if you break it down to really simple terms, and you think about nature, right? The, deers are, the deer are born, it's a good year, the grass grows, so they eat a lot of the grass, so they overeat the grass, so then they all starve the next year and they get thinned out. It's kind of cyclical. And if you look back at human history, similar things, right? They grow up, they get big, they eventually die. Why, why are you thinking linear and not cyclical? I, I think that's a huge, yeah. huge question and really important question, and thank you. Uh, I think we were talking progress today as being linear because we were talking about modernist progress, which is linear, but we have talked to certainly plenty of people who say that the idea of progress itself is just false. Yeah. That change is what, is what happens. Yeah, and I don't think... I would want to be on record as saying that I thought progress was linear. <laughs> but definitely that, I mean, I think you bring up a great point in that what we're working, or what a lot of these folks who are talking about different definitions of progress are working against is the idea that it is a linear thing. Um, and certainly, you know, myself being a historian, a lot of what you're working with is overturning the work of earlier historians who charted linear progress, typically through like a chronology of great white guys. Um, and then you're revising it and you're going, okay, well actually, here are all these other ways we could measure progress and it's this really uneven thing. And it's, it's I mean, if, if you were to think of it as like a stock ticker, it's a totally different ticker based on what definition of progress you plug in, right? And that is based on the historian and what they value. Um, so I think that our ideas of progress have probably gotten a hell of a lot more flexible as we've done this project. Um, and I think, I think it has to be, right? Because every one of these, like if you're looking at um, you know, ecology, you could say, you know, or, or the health of the ecosphere, you could say human progress has just been going downhill. I mean, if you were a, a primitivist, you would probably argue that. Um, and you could certainly make some interesting cyclical arguments about, about progress. God, that makes me think of uh, Joseph Tainter. Oh, this is probably the most depressing conversation we had in this project of depressing conversations. Not all of them, but um, 
we, we actually almost called this project the Cassandra project just because <laughs> we knew how how much of a downer some of it was going to be. So Joseph Tainter is a he's a historian and anthropologist yeah. at Utah State and Logan, and he's written like the authoritative book on the collapse of civilizations. It's like a thousand pages long, and it is both historical and uh, anthropological. And it is scary to talk to him because he he is one of those guys that just says, no, 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 the, the system will collapse and I give it, well, in the next 75 years, there are five or six things that could bring it down. And yeah. Like, and like whether or not you agree with him, he's got this really, like because he's been, I mean, he spent his entire career doing this stuff. So he's kind of self-selected a lot of really depressing evidence. But at the same time, he builds a really good case for sort of cyclical progress, um, which you know, when you're when you're sitting there talking to him, it's sort of like hard to muster another ar argument because he's so effective, and it's it's hard to really cross-examine him, which is a fun interview to do. But um, you know, I mean, he gives you a really good argument that you sort of got this undulating wave of history, and I mean, he wouldn't say it's progress per se; he would say it's complexity. You know, so you get increases in social complexity, increases in technical complexity, and then usually... I mean, You've worked up enough of an energy debt, basically, is, is what, he, what he talks about. And once, you, once that energy debt comes due, then you have collapse, and then you start to build up again. But you never fully pay off the debt, and, and you always start from around you know the middle of where you were before and right. so complexity is always building and so the debt is getting even higher and higher right and and maybe you could call that some sort of cumulative progress that he sees but i don't think he sees it as a good or a bad thing he's a really interesting thinker um definitely for giving you a lot of different ideas of progress especially ones that can coexist the idea of like well maybe it's cyclical maybe it's a little bit linear maybe it's all just depressing for him i don't know <laughs> process question, and that is, uh, you mentioned your sharp people you want to speak with. Mm -hmm. How have you, you know, what is your universe of people? Is there a criteria of who you're talking with? Is there, you know, discipline? What discipline? Geography? Are you talking to international people? Uh, how you're looking at the voices that are leading to where you are, and you're in game. Mm -hmm. What are you doing with all this information? Will you be writing a book? Well, I can answer the last part first. That one's easy. Um, every conversation that we've had is online. Uh, it's at findtheconversation.com. And uh, these are really, you know, often they're, they're drawn from the incredibly long conversations I had with people. I've, I've talked to, uh, to one woman, a really amazing embedded artist with the city of Chicago, and we talked for seven and a half hours, and I cut that down to a 45-minute episode. So most of the episodes are a little under an hour in length. Um, so that's kind of where all this is gone. That's the easy part to answer. In terms of the selection criteria, or even just how we came up with names in, in the first place, I mean, so we've been working on this now for, uh, I think, two years as of, like, now-ish. Yeah. Um, and it started with the idea that we, we wanted to come up with people from every possible realm we could, right? So from the arts, from the humanities, from science and technology, uh, people that are known, people that are completely unknown. Skewing more towards the unknown. Yeah. You know? And I think part of that is because we were looking for people who are really on the fringes of thought. 
um, and and experiment and things like that. And people you might, I don't know, you know, ideally doing like local pilot projects. And it, it proved to be very hard to find those. We found a lot of them, but it was harder work than finding national people who are kind of kind of public intellectual figures who write books. Public intellectuals, they, they already have their soapbox, you know, they already have TED, they have South By, yeah. they have the bookstore. Um, so we wanted to try and find people that, that didn't, didn't have those same, you know, those same avenues. Right, like get the right urban farmer in Detroit, get, you know, a really oddball, like a, oh, the grindhouse wetware guy, yeah. you know, in Pittsburgh who's doing like, you know, trying to become Body a cyborg. Yeah. Um, and so lots of stuff like that, trying to find those local people. And then geographically, yes, it has all been uh, United States at this point, mainly because Angus is driven everywhere yeah. for it. Right, because actually another thing that um, we wanted to make sure of, especially because I was doing the interviews, is I wanted to do them all face to face. I felt that was truer to the concept of the project and also I hate interviewing people on the phone. You just get better conversations when you're in person, and they can be a lot longer, um, and they can be a lot more spontaneous. So that's kind of capped us from doing anything international. And then just our funding structure, which is basically non-existent, has made international work difficult. Uh, but it would be awesome to do that. And we, we, our listener base has been really broad. And so we keep getting really amazing recommendations um, from people overseas going like, oh, you know, are you going to be in Tel Aviv? You really need to talk to this guy. And we would love to do that. Because what's really interesting is like when you do a project like that, this, you start finding these big currents and sort of what people are thinking about. Um, and I feel like we've got them for the US. And then foreign listeners write in and I'm like, oh my god, we have no idea what people are thinking and talking about elsewhere. You know, we are so damn sheltered. Um, so it would be cool to do more of that. Yes. Howdy. Uh, just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, the about human rights in this context, because um, to me, I read the UN Declaration of Human Rights a, a few months ago for the first time. I was just really struck by how kind of inarguably um, good it is, as you were talking about the, the, the perfect goods, and it's also the closest it seems like we have as a planet to defining progress in a good way and what what sort of ought to be. Um, you know, things like you have the right to work and contribute value to society, and if you uh, and if you don't, if you if you aren't given that, you have the right to uh, have your basic needs taken care of um, in the context of unemployment. Um, and there's and there's all these other you know just basic assumptions about what people should have. But if you look at something like that in the context of the political debate over denying unemployment benefits. Um, you know, Congress is actually violating a human right that not people, you know, people might not think about all the time. And um, so just, I feel like we have this list of whatever it is, 20, 30 items that are, that are things that we should strive toward and, and, and how do we just get to this basic understanding of, of all people should have all, all human rights that we agree on. I mean, that's kind of an interesting one because once, once you start talking about rights, Oh boy, does that get thorny, right? Because that's like, I mean, there's like, you could, that's something that philosophers get tangled up about all the time. Like, what should be a right and what should you, you know, I think we have a real trend, uh, an intellectual trend towards like saying, let's keep things as, uh, this isn't in practice, but like, we like the idea of stripping things down as much as possible and having, you know, 
as flexible a system as you can have, which doesn't always mean guaranteeing rights, right? Because a lot of that, I think, comes down to the way people think about, and uh, stop me if you think I'm nuts here, but like personal responsibility or fairness, right? A lot of, a lot of the rights conversation always gets into, uh, into the idea of like, is a right an entitlement? And, you know, the fairness thing is, is the assumption that, like, well, some people are just not going to do anything. It isn't their right to have that. Um, and so it's amazing how stuff that seems like so self-evident can actually be disputed in ways that often also seem philosophically persuasive. Yeah, in some ways, it's, it's, that's analogous to trying to, to look at modernist progress, right? You know, mm -hmm. the things that are just assumed to be true. Right. By, and, we, and we assume that this is just, this is a given. Um, but definitely, I think, you know, those ideas are a important idea of the good that a lot of people ascribe to, at least ostensibly. Um, but they are just, you know, they are another one of those irrational beliefs. Yeah, and what's interesting is that sometimes there actually are persuasive arguments against right. things that seem so commonsensical. And yet with something like, you know, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, I think about Francione again, the guy at Rutgers, and his idea, you know, his, <laughs> the case he was trying to make to me for moral realism. And I think that seems like one of those examples where, where you could say, no, this is, this is a moral realist claim. Like, I'm not objectively saying that this should be true. But come on, guys, you know, which is essentially what I think his form of moral realism is like, would you really deny that like food is, is a right? Like, would you just would you feel OK saying, well, this person didn't work hard enough, let them starve? You know, and I think for him, that comes down to a really visceral point. Moral realism is a felt thing and it can't be argued about in the same way. Which is interesting, because if you're a conversation nerd like us, then you're like, well, you just took it out of the realm of conversation. And is that a type of fundamentalism? I don't know. Yeah. By any rational standards, I mean, it seems that the, the hard sciences have grotesquely outstripped the social sciences in the sense that the social sciences are really on the verge of being irrelevant. Mm. Certainly, they're treated that way. Certainly, if you have a degree in social sciences and you try and monetize that, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of demand for that. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody doesn't know. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have the prospect of somebody like a, a brilliant mind like Werner, Werner von, uh, von Braun, you know, devoting his energies to the V2 missile and bombing London, um, you know, where you say, okay, oh my God, you, you, you have this tremendous hard science uh, development, you know, and then you have no social science development, or, or it's, it's clearly stalled. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a, uh, an, an era of, um, of cultural senility. Right? I mean, what is new in the arts? What is new in literature? Um, I mean, there is some new, but if you look at the transformation between 1900 and 1960 and compare that over the last 30 years, I mean, the kids in high school listen to Led Zeppelin. I mean, I wouldn't listen to stuff that was 40 years old and when I was in high school. So do, do you notice, do you see that sense of stagnation? And, and to what do you attribute that? Are we allowed to talk about post-modernity in here without getting beaten up? <laughs> Go for it, I got your back. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this is a direct link, but this is kind of what just jumps to mind when you say that, is that uh, a lot of the thinkers in the project who 
I found most interesting, and maybe who you found most interesting as well, talked about a big part of the, the crisis we have is one of feeling really jaded and really ironic and really detached. And I think they would trace those sentiments probably over the same time period you're talking about. And they don't always trace it back to a philosophical shift, you know, because we never really think, well, philosophy doesn't make a damn bit of difference when it gets out of the culture. But, but it does, right? And what's, what's interesting about, I think, some of the relativism, some of the discourse stuff that comes out of like Foucault and other postmodern thinkers is, is that you kind of get to feel really disempowered. You get to feel like, ah, maybe I'm not that right, or maybe I can't affect change. And so the really interesting thinkers in this project are ones who like take the good stuff from that sort of um, philosophical world and say, okay, well, we can analyze power in X, Y, and Z ways, and, and postmodern thought gives us those tools. But we're not going to take it to the point where it critiques itself and then just becomes this implosion of nihilism, right? And so we've had all these thinkers go like, okay, we acknowledge that there are a lot of discourses, that a lot of things are, are relative, but does that mean we're just going to stop and go, oh, everything's relative, let's not try to make the world a better place. Oh, the deck, the deck is stacked against us, which it is, we're going to stop now. And so it's kind of like, what do you do beyond that? And um, something that, that I know people have been talking more about in England, and this is where I wish this was an international project, is metamodernism, which is something I do not fully understand, but I think it is, it's someone, uh, and I can't remember the guy's name, it's a specific thinker, who's trying to go beyond, beyond the irony, beyond the jaded sensibility, and beyond maybe the, the pessimism that I think comes out of too much, uh, or the over-application of postmodern philosophy, and lets you get to a different point. And I think you see that in the arts as well. That may just be a total bullshit answer. I don't know, I hope not. Yeah, but I also think there's a lot of, I mean, I think that from that intersection, um, there's a lot merging in arts and culture right now, and even in the last maybe like three to five years. Mm -hmm. I think this is also a place where um, an international exploration would be really interesting because coming from the sort of um, post-colonial, well, let me not say post-colonial world because there's no such thing, but from post-colonies, um, I think there's a lot of really interesting things that are emerging from that intersection between, you know, well, you know, here's here's the reality of development, post-development, um, post-colonial reality in, in a globalized society. Um, and also here's technology. Technology in the developing world is being used in, I think, a lot more interesting ways than it's being used here. Um, that's also the context that I'm coming from. Um, and also, I think within that, the arts, the intersection between post-colonial thought, technology, and art, and culture right now is really, really emerging and incredible right now. If you go, like, Volts of New York is going on right now, which is one of the largest art festivals in the world. And there's a huge developing world presence there. And I think it's because there is this intersection between, um, getting back to, this is what life is really like when you're trying to survive, mm -hmm. and this is how we're using technology, not because, for the idea of progress, because we can, but because we have to, and we're in a, a, a globalized world, and so I think that that context could, would 
totally changed this conversation in a way. And that's why we do this project, because I didn't know about that stuff in New York especially. So it's like, that would be, like, that'll go on the giant spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> and we're at 11. Yeah. Or 12. 12. Whatever time zone we're in. Uh, we're done. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for taking part in our experiment. So that was our panel. It was recorded on the 10th of March, 2014. And we'll be back here soon with Joan Blades, the co-founder of MoveOn.org. But she won't be talking about MoveOn too much. She'll be talking about Living Room Conversations, a project that she's working on with the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots that encourages people from different walks of political life to talk to each other. So it's right up our alley. And that will be, God, our first proper episode in a very long time. And there are going to be some great ones coming up after that. So we'll try to pick the pace back up here. Yep. We've missed you. We hope you've missed us. And uh, and we'll be talking soon. <laughs> <laughs>